Thomas Aquinas is not easy to understand on one's own. The purpose of these lectures is to introduce basic principles of Aquinas' metaphysics or ontology. That is to say, what does Aquinas take to be the basic structure of reality, the very causes of things insofar as they exist? I will treat this question with a twofold concern. First, to identify what Aquinas actually thought and wrote accurately and historically with some reference to textual evidence. Second, to decide whether what Aquinas thinks is realistic or plausible. That is to say, is Thomism true? In the first lecture, I will examine the notions of form and matter as well as those of substance and accidents, inherent properties of the substance. In the second lecture, I will consider analogical conceptions of being, in particular, the concepts of being in actuality and being in potentiality. This division of being allows one to think about Aquinas' famous distinction between esse, in Latin, existence, and essentia, essence. In turn, we can consider briefly why it is that Aquinas thinks that the world of ordinary, natural realities points us towards the existence of God as the transcendent origin of being. Aquinas thinks metaphysics terminates in monotheism. In the third lecture, which is tomorrow, Sunday, I will consider Aquinas' idea that philosophy is a kind of wisdom, sapientia in Latin, that allows one to perceive a hierarchy of being in the world and to consider briefly some important modern objections to Aquinas' notions that stem from Kant, Heidegger, and Neo-Darwinianism. So here's the first lecture, Substance Metaphysics. Let's begin with a basic question, what are principles? We should begin by saying a word about the term principles. What does it mean to seek to understand reality in terms of its principles and causes? For both Aristotle and Aquinas, language of principles can be understood in two ways. In one way, this term refers uniquely to something intentional or mental that exists in the mind alone as when we solve an intellectual problem by going back to the first principles of the argument and moving forward logically. Geometry works from principles. In these lectures, this is not the definition I am focusing on, though I will refer to it. Second, the second, more important sense has to do with the very structures of reality. Here, the term principles denotes the constitutive causes of a given reality. What is it that makes a given thing the kind of thing that it is. And how does our understanding of ontological causality, causality of being, in turn give us an adequate realistic explanation of a given reality? Note the relationship I'm suggesting here between ontological structure, principles in the second sense, and intellectual understanding, principles of explanation, principles in the first sense. The passage from one to the other occurs through our appeal to causal explanation. It's when I achieve an accurate and true understanding of the causes in the reality itself that I can begin to construct accurate explanations of reality, themselves constituted by arguments from premises that lead to true universal conclusions. If I understand why a given thing is the kind of thing it is, I achieve an adequate mental understanding regarding the thing in itself. Now this is not a Kantian order of reflection, 
where we pass from a construction of the mind, the construal of the transcendental subject, to the outside world to test the theory, like a theorem of Newtonian physics that we try out through scientific experiment. Instead, the presumption here is that we can come to know the very basic structures of reality imperfectly, but truly, as they are in themselves. And this, in turn, allows us to speak rightly about the metaphysical nature of reality in universally applicable ways. The aim of the search for principles, then, is to elaborate a metaphysical science or a universal form of thought that is insightful and realistic. And Aquinas thinks this kind of knowledge of reality is possible. Form and matter. It is helpful to begin by thinking about Aquinas' doctrine of form and matter. I will revisit many of the things Bill Carroll talked about last night, but that will allow us to develop organically. Technically speaking, the distinction of form and matter arises in Aristotle's philosophy of nature, the physics, rather than the metaphysics. And Aquinas recognizes that form and matter are key principles in the philosophy of nature. However, he also discusses both these principles extensively in his metaphysics. And it is helpful to grasp what he means by these terms as a prelude to thinking more deeply about Aquinas' understanding of substances and of actuality and potentiality. The first thing to say is that for Aquinas, as for Aristotle, form and matter are co-constitutive principles of physical substances. What does that mean? In saying that they are co-constitutive, we mean that matter and form are really ontologically distinct and that the distinction is not a mental fiction, but that they only ever exist together, never separately. The fact that they are distinct does not mean that they, are ont that they are ontologically separable. There is no physical object that is simply form with no matter or entirely material with no natural form. Rather, each physical object is a composite reality, ontologically speaking. It is comprised of both natural form and matter. Second, form and matter are co-constitutive principles only of physical realities. We are not asking the question here of whether immaterial realities exist. Aquinas does believe in immaterial realities such as God for reasons that he thinks are philosophically compelling. Arguments from reason. <laughs> but for him, the four-matter distinction is proper to physical substances alone, not immaterial things. Okay. What then do we mean when we talk about natural form? Is the Thomistic notion of form merely an archaic philosophical idea that has no real relevancy in our modern scientific era? I hope to explain clearly why this is not the case, and on the contrary, Aquinas' notion of form is quite apt for understanding many of the taxonomies, the labelings, the categories of natural kinds that we attempt to construe in the, modern work of moder in the work of modern science and contemporary philosophy. We should begin by speaking negatively, that is to say, by identifying three things that natural form is not. First, the form of a physical thing for Aquinas is not its physical shape, position, or the figure of the thing as it's represented to our senses. This is sort of like what, Mike, uh, the, what uh, Bill Carroll was talking about in terms of structure, the physical shape. That's not form. 
It would be painfully naive on our part to think that either ancients like Aristotle or medievals like Aquinas could make the simple mistake of confusing the formal nature of a thing with its representational figure, like the shape of a man we see in a painting, or the physical arrangement of the reality, as when we see the cat lying on a mat in front of the house. The medieval philosophers spoke of these categories of beings in terms of the quantitative figure or the locative uh, position of a thing, but they did not confuse this with the formal nature of a given thing. The formal nature is the determination of the reality, and this pertains to the thing at a much deeper level of being than the mere shape or position of that reality, let alone the way it strikes us in sensate representations. After all, I can inquire into what a given person's human nature is, their form, even when that person is changing position, or even independently of whether she is represented to my senses at any given time. The human nature is constant even though the person may change dramatically over time. If you walk across the room, you don't cease to be a human being. If you change position, you don't cease to be a human being. <coughs> Second, the form is not something merely static that exists independently of change. On the contrary, the form must be precisely the most fundamental determination of a physical reality that persists in identity in and through all changes. Consider a child who is less than a meter tall, and then that same child ten years later, and then today, sitting in this same room as you and I, and then fifty years from now, very elderly. This is always the same kind of thing, and the natural form, being human, is what persists in and through the change as the principle of essential intelligibility. It is that principle in virtue of which we identify what a thing is in and through the many historical processes that occur, from being a child to being an old man, always a human form. Needless to say, the modern observational sciences presuppose and make constant use of this kind of basic realism in virtually any of their methodological procedures, since they presume the constant presence of natural kinds as a premise for their experiments. This is true biologically, for example, if one were to presuppose the presence of a stable formal nature present in mice so that one might experiment on the development of mice from the embryonic stage to their mature development. This would also be the true at a very basic chemical level if one were working with radiographic isotopes and were presuming a constant identity of various atomic compounds as the basis for a set of experiments. The form of the thing is the natural identity of that reality that persists through time. Finally, the natural form for Aquinas is not merely something that results from an accidental arrangement of independently existing material parts. What do I mean by this? Here we should contrast an artifact, like an automobile, from a natural organism like a human being. The artifact for Aquinas is not a natural forms, a natural form. Automobiles do not arise from natural forces, rather they are products of artistic industry in which, in which one takes pre-existing natural realities and alters them 
combining them with one another so as to impose from without, as it were, a new set of relationships. If we assemble a house from wood, stone, copper, and other natural substances, we create an artifact from those material things. So we might imagine then that just as an artistic form, like the house itself, is composed of pre-existing parts, wood and stone and so forth, so the human person is a mere assembly of smaller parts, organs, cells, chemical compounds, atoms, existing in an accidental heap of relations. However, Aquinas thinks that natural forms like human beings, or for that matter, animals, plants, diamonds, water, or smaller physical elements, are different than artificial forms like automobiles or houses. In natural realities, the formal determination occurs at a deeper level of the being of the thing and is not merely the product of an accidental arrangement of material parts. Rather, the form is what gives the determination to the natural material parts so that those parts are always already parts of that kind of natural thing. So, for example, if the natural form in question is a human being, then we might speak of the organ, uh, an organ like the heart or the lungs. These material parts of the person are not there first in separation and then put together like parts of the car. We assemble you in the hospital. Bring the lungs, bring the heart, bring the muscles, bring the blood. We'll build a human being on the operating table. No. They are only ever organs in and for the living body of the human being. Likewise, even if we speak only of atoms at a most microscopic level, the protons, neutrons, and electrons exist as intrinsic to the kind of thing under consideration, the formal atom itself, and not apart from it. Of course, we should recognize that a material part, such as an organ of a human body or an electron in an atom, might be separated from the formal whole, and I will return to this below. But in point of fact, this potential, potential separability issue is not of importance to the argument at hand. The key issue at this point is to note that the natural form for Aquinas pertains to the intrinsic determination of a reality, not an extrinsically imposed artificial determination as we find in human artifacts. Now, in clarifying what the form is not, we have been led to, sev to state several features of what the natural form is. I have basically claimed that for Aquinas, the form is first an intrinsic principle of determination that gives stable identity to a given reality through time. We identify the essence of a natural reality, be it an animal, a tree, a diamond, or an atom, based upon its natural form. If you were a scientist and you sent your assistant into the biology lab to get the mice and he came back with the orangutan, you would wonder about his sanity because you presuppose that he can grasp the essential form of the mice. Second, it is the cause of the realities having a given identity or intelligible essence in and through all the changes that it undergoes. It is that which persists essentially in and through all the secondary alterations of a given reality that a given reality is subject to.
All right, the, the, the remaining determinant principle and essence. It is also, third, the principle of internal organization of the material parts of a given reality so that those parts can be identified always only as parts of a given kind of reality. If we state this definition succinctly, we can say that the form is the intrinsic principle of determination in any material reality through which that thing retains its essential identity in and through all the changes it undergoes and from which the material parts of that thing receive internal organization. Now, to this first definition, we can add two additional ideas. The form is also, fourthly, the essential source of stable properties, and it is, fifthly, the foundation for teleological outcomes. What do we mean by this? The natural form of a thing has to do with its essential identity as a material being, what kind of material being it is. But what kind of thing a given thing is, is typically exhibited in and through its properties and activities. For example, a plant typically puts down roots into the ground and extends branches and leaves in order to nourish itself through the intake of water and nutrients from the soil by way of photosynthesis from sunlight and air. This is a typical property of plants, and so such properties are also expressive of the natural forms of plant life. Analogously, the chemical of white phosphorus typically produces radiation. Mammals typically care for their offspring through milk produced from mammary glands in the female. Human beings typically reason, seek the truth, and try to become happy through processes of free choice making. In short, natural forms imply properties, and these properties express themselves through predictable outcomes or effects of the natural form. Insofar as these effects follow from or flow from the kind of reality in question, we may speak of teleology or final causality. These are typical effects that are produced by a given form. White phosphorus emits radiation. Plants nourish themselves through photosynthesis. Mammals nourish their young with milk. Human beings seek happiness and wish to understand reality. These are teleological inclinations in realities, inclinations towards proper effects or outcomes. Okay, that's form, briefly stated. Let us turn to the question of matter. Typically, when we think of matter in the modern scientifically informed era, we think of atoms and molecules, those seemingly smallest elements of things that make up physical reality as we know it. <coughs> now, perhaps one might contest this view and claim in turn that the most basic elements are in fact quarks or bosons and that atoms are secondary collections of smaller, more basic units. But the question of what the most basic simples really are can be left to one side here. In America, analytic philosophers talk about simples, whatever the smallest thing is. Atoms, quarks, bosons, simples. The popular imagination portrays the world as a collection of small particles gathered together in various accidental collections or bundles 
governed by physical forces that have perhaps randomly generated the organization of more complex things like plants and living beings through the, dur through the duration of a long cosmic history. Aquinas thinks of the matter of a natural form in quite a different way, though, as we shall see, not in a way that is opposed to the modern knowledge of chemicals, atoms, and smaller particles. In interpreting Aquinas on matter, it is helpful to start it is helpful from the start to make a basic distinction. The word matter can be taken in two ways. First, there are material parts of natural forms. And second, there is matter as pure potency, so-called prime matter. The former notion has a great deal of overlap with modern science, the latter less so, though it is not opposed to modern science either. When Aquinas speaks of matter in the strict sense, he means matter as pure potency, prime matter. Let's consider these two ideas of matter each in turn. Matter, material parts. Material parts, according to Aquinas, are those internally differentiated elements of a given reality of which it is composed. So imagine here the material parts of a, a, a living human body. The lungs, the heart, brain, nervous system, muscular structure, and so forth. The material parts of a given reality are typically complementary to one another and function within a given natural form in mutually reinforcing ways. The clearest example of this is found in the biological organs of a living thing. In a human person, for example, the heart is a significant material part. But it is the case, but as is the case also for the liver or the lungs. These material parts have distinct purposes or functions and operate together within a larger organic system to sustain life. But we could say analogous things about protons, electrons, and neutrons in an atom. The three material parts co-inhere with one another in the whole in a complementary fashion. The notion of material parts has a flexibility for Aquinas and can go down in the descending scale of smaller subparts. For example, physical organs like the lungs and the heart are parts of the organic human body. Cell tissues of the heart are part of the organ. <laughs> the individual cells, in turn, are part of the tissues. Chemical compounds are part of the cells. And atoms are part of the chemicals. You go down, 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 different levels. More material parts, all the way down. One may, of course, ask which of these levels of reality gives us the most basic elements? Is everything reducible to atoms, for example? Modern physics tends to take the atom as the most basic unit of reality and to understand chemical compounds and living things as second-order effects of atomic coagulations. This methodology may be entirely warranted from the point of view of the object of experimental physics. But should we derive our ontology and philosophy of nature from this standpoint, or does this standpoint need to be qualified by an equally valid philosophical perspective? Metaphysically speaking, is the human body merely an accidental clump of billions of independent cells, themselves merely accidental clumps of atoms? This is not the case for Aquinas. 
He holds that large-scale organic substances such as human beings or horses or plants are singular wholes, living forms composed of material parts that have themselves smaller compositional parts, and that these parts all exist within the formal nature that is first and all-determinant. In this case, the human being, the horse, the plant, and so forth. My organs are human organs with human cell tissue, human cells, and the chemicals and atoms that are part of the human body. These lower level material parts only ever have their place and context of being within a larger material body, in this case, the material body of a human being. The other sense of the word matter is concerned with Aquinas' proper definition of matter as pure potency. <coughs> pure potency is not the same thing as the material parts of a being, nor is it a quest for the most basic particle, like the quark versus the atom. When discussing this problem of the smallest primal units, Aquinas would have spoken of the most basic elements in his own era of medieval science, not of prime matter. Matter considered as pure potency is not something formal at all, having any determination whatsoever, be it chemical or molecular. After all, a chemical or a, mole a molecule is a formal determination of matter. Instead, matter as pure potency is a principle of radical indetermination present in all physical things. Matter is what allows a given physical reality to undergo constant redetermination, new determination, and even to have its form and material parts transformed into something else through substantial generation of one thing from another. For Aquinas, philosophy can demonstrate that matter as pure potency is ontologically real even though we only ever encounter it as a co-principle of form. That is to say, we only ever encounter matter as a potency existing in natural physical beings. All these beings have within themselves a principle of fundamental indetermination, whereby they are subject to, potentially, to a potentially indefinite number of alterations or transformations due precisely to their material potentiality. I think this is actually very commonsensical. Prime matter is a difficult topic, and it's often thought to be very mysterious. And many things Aquinas says are confusing about prime matter. But if you look at it as the principle of indetermination, I think it makes a lot of sense. And it's very compatible with modern science. We might consider the argument this way. Any given physical thing can be subject to change by another acting upon it due to the alteration of its material physical body. Such changes can be quantitative, changes in shape or size, or qualitative changes, like changing temperature or color, or substantial changes, like coming into being or going out of being, as when one changes one thing into another, like wood being consumed by fire and changed to ash. So there is a fundamental capacity for alteration that is present in all physical things by virtue of their materiality. Furthermore, when one thing is changed into another thing, there is something that continues to be from the one thing to the other. If a human being eats or digests an apple, 
there is something of the apple now existing in the human being, of course. But if we ask what this potency is that allows anything material to undergo a further kind of redetermination, we should ask what it is that is common to all things, allowing them to undergo transformation. This principle is not explained by or intellectually reducible to any given formal determination in a given thing. As if I were to say that I might undergo alteration of color uniquely because my skin is subject to change by another. Indeed, my skin is not the common element in all change because the skin itself might be subject to radical change, being consumed by the earth after my death and in turn transformed into something else, plants. <laughs> but this is true of everything in us, including the atoms or chemicals or whatever smallest unit we might like to consider. Everything formal or determined at whatever level of material part is always subject to further potential for transformation or alteration. And new things do come out of older things so that there are principles of continuity between one being and another. For example, if all the cells, chemicals, and even atoms in my body were changed into something else, there would be some principle of continuity between me and the other thing. But this would not be a continuity of natural forms. Instead, it is the matter of my body that has been taken up into that other reality. Consequently, at a most radical level, the capacity or potency for transformation of one thing into another thing depends upon a radical principle of indetermination and potency that is present in all things that are physical. According to Aquinas, this is the elusive but real thing we denote, we mean to denote when we speak philosophically of matter. One sign of its reality is that any quantitative division we can conceive of, no matter how small, is always subject to potential further division, as mathematics itself suggests. What is the smallest number? What is the smallest number? Zero. Yeah, no. You can, you, it, it, of a, of a, that's, that measures a quantity. Okay, <laughs> zero is an absence. Once you have one or... Point, 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 zero, 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 one. Divide it in half. It's divisible. Quantity is always divisible. There's more, there's a principle of indetermination in quantity. So you split the atom. You have a very powerful laser beam, and you cut the atom in half. Small, powerful laser beam. You cut the atom in half. Then cut the quark in half. Cut the boson in half. Keep cutting. More powerful lasers. You can always cut. <laughs> because there's indetermination. Why is this the case? Because of the residual material potency present in all things, we can always subdivide form due to the residue of material potency. The cell can be broken into chemicals, the chemicals into atoms, the atoms into elements of the atom, and those into quarks, and so on. Why? Because there is always a principle of indetermination present in everything, however large or small. On this reading, matter as a principle of pure potency is not something mythical, mythical or intellectually obscure. It is the ontological foundation for mutability and alterability that remains latent 
in all material things in and through all their changes in spite of whatever actual determinations they currently have. Okay. That's matter and form. Let's turn in the last part of this lecture to substance and property. Substance and properties, the category, the categorical modes of being. <coughs> we can turn now to another central Thomist distinction between substance and property or accident. Now the easiest way to begin a consideration of this distinction is by taking up the notions of form and matter with regards to concrete individuals. Do concrete individuals exist? Of course they do. There are stars, planets, plants, and animals, human beings, and so forth. Are concrete individuals merely forms without matter? If we take form in the sense understood above, of course not. Aquinas is not a Platonist. There are no separate forms, if by this we mean abstract universals that exist apart from singular entities. The abstract notion of the form human being is a universal concept that the human mind formulates to allow it to consider that nature that is common to all human beings. The abstract universal man exists only in the mind, in its conceptual mode of being, not in the singular entity itself. So this human being here, John or Andrew or William, is a human being, but his or her form or nature is only ever that of a singular human individual. On the other hand, this individual man is not pure matter in either of the senses understood above, either as material parts or as pure potency. Why? Because he is a unified entity whose material parts and whose material potency inhere in something greater than themselves, that is to say, in the one being who he is. This man here is an individual of a given kind, having a natural form, subsisting in a given matter. That is to say, having these material compart, these material parts that compose the human body. If this conception of individual natural kinds is correct, then we live in a universe of concrete individual substances that have natural, fo natural kinds, forms, but that are also material. Each of us has a nature, the same human nature, and each of us is a unique individual distinct from all the others. And this is what a substance is. This is what a substance is. A singular being having a given nature. A particular individual is a substance just because it is a singular entity of a given kind. If you want to think about substance very briefly in Aristotle, well, in Aquinas, reading Aristotle, it's always two things, an individual and a natural kind. This panda bear, this kangaroo, this plant, this human being is a substance. This star, this planet. Okay. However, part of the problem with thinking clearly about substances is that material individuals, as we encounter them, also clearly have a variety of properties. They have a given quantity, for example, and various qualities. Andrew is one and a half meters tall and plays soccer extremely well, football, plays football extremely well. He is related to his father by birth and he has a congenital heart condition that affects his health and so forth. 
how do we understand rightly the, the relationship of various properties like those of the unified singular being uh, of, of a given thing? How do we, sorry, how do we understand rightly the relationship of various properties like these to the unified singular being of a given thing, the substance? Aristotle, as is well known, sought to give a list of the diverse genre of properties, the so-called categories, are categorial modes of being. These are diverse modal realizations of properties that are all irreducible to one another and that all inhere ontologically in the substance. We might think of this as a list of the building blocks of reality, what we find in substances at large in the world. You could think of it as the periodic table, not of chemicals, but of ontology. The basics. Aquinas has a famous text in his commentary on Aristotle's Metaphysics, Book 7, where he gives a derivation for the diverse categories that Aristotle presents us with. Aquinas's claim is that they represent ontologically distinct features of reality. He begins by noting how our language tracks onto or, and, or reflects our knowledge of being. We attribute certain properties of things to those things themselves, to individual substances, as when we say, for example, that John is intelligent. Intelligence is a quality, a property that inheres in John. The category quality that we name in speech corresponds accurately to quantities we find out there in reality. Aquinas begins the passage this way. For it should be noted that a predicate can be referred to a subject in three ways. First, this occurs in one way when the predicate states what the subject is, as when I say that Socrates is an animal. For Socrates is the thing which is an animal. And this predicate is said to signify first substance, a particular substance of which all attributes are predicated. In this case, uh, it's a genus, not a species. You could say Socrates is a man specifically, but generically, he is a, an animal, and it's, an, it's a reference to his substance because it refers to the kind of thing he is as an individual, the form, animal form. Aquinas then continues by noting how one may attribute a property to the substance in one of two ways, either as an intrinsic property or with reference to another thing. The first case, intrinsic property, is then divided into two. Since intrinsic properties can derive from the qualities or from the quantities of a thing. He writes, A predicate is referred to a subject in a second way when the predicate is taken as being in the subject intrinsically. And this predicate is in the subject either essentially and absolutely or, sorry, and as something flowing from its matter. And then it is quantity or as something flowing from its form and then it is quality. Or, it is not present in the subject absolutely, but with reference to something else extrinsically, and then it's relation, a relation. Notice that Aquinas sees properties as emerging from the two principles we've already explored. Because things are material and have material parts, they have properties of quantity. Right? So your quantity emerges from, or is a, a dimension of your materiality. To be material is to have a quantity as a property, a category of your being. Because these realities have a formal determination of nature, they have diverse qualities. So, for example, human beings are rational, 
So they have the property of thinking. They have, that's part of their form or their natural form is that they think, they desire to be happy. It's formally, uh, it's formally of our nature to desire to be happy. So we have the property of seeking happiness. Because they relate to other realities in virtue of the form and matter, physical substances also have a diversity of relations. Okay? So we're quantitatively related to each other in this room. Quantitative relations, qualitatively related by trying to find the truth together. Right? Qualitative relations. The remainder of the Aristotelian category, categorial beings can be derived from such relations which are irreducibly diverse in kind. Everything else is a kind of modal realization of relations. He goes on. The predicate is referred to a subject as a, in a third way when the predicate is taken from something extrinsic to the subject, and this occurs in two ways. In one way, from that which the predicate is taken, uh, in one way, that from which the predicate is taken is totally extrinsic to the subject, and if this is not a measure of the subject, is predicated after, after the manner of a tire, a habit, as when it is said that Socrates is wearing, wearing shoes or clothed. So, I have a habitual relationship to my clothes. They're not me, but they're habitually related to me. But if it is a measure of the subject, then since an extrinsic measure is either time or place, the predicament is taken either in reference to time, and so it will be when a thing exists, or if it is taken in reference to place, uh, in reference to, uh, in reference to, sorry, and in order of parts, it, the order of parts in place is not considered. It will be where, but if this order is considered, it will be position. Okay, so he's saying all beings exist in a given time, a given place, and a given position. We are in Wuhan. We are in the hotel. It is in the morning. You are seated, seated, sitting down in the hotel in Wuhan. I am standing up in the. It's realist. It's very concrete. It's very concrete. In another way, that from which the predicate is taken, though outside the subject, is nevertheless from a certain point of view in the subject in which it's predicated. And if it is from the, the viewpoint of the principle that it is predicated as an action, for the principle of action is in the subject, but, it is, but, if, it is, uh, but if from the viewpoint of terminus, then it will be predicated as a passion, for passion is terminated in the subject which is being acted upon. So right now, I am speaking, and you are listening. Action and passion. When we have conversations, one person speaks, the other person listens. The other person speaks, the other person listens. Activity and passivity. Passion is, passion is receptivity, passivity. Passio in Latin. Okay. What we find here is arguably a very realistic taxonomy of the kinds of properties we find in, the world, in, in things in the world around us. Our world is composed of diverse substances that have diverse natures. Huh? Stars, kangaroos, panda bears, human beings, plants. We can make basic distinctions about the kinds of things that exist based on their fundamental properties. For example, we can realistically distinguish living things from non-living things. Among living things, some which we call plants only have properties of mobility, growth, nutrition, and reproduction. Others, which we call animals, have properties of sensation as well. Finally, human beings alone have properties of conceptual abstract reasoning and free deliberative choice making. 
each of these general kinds of things, non-living beings, plants, animals, human beings, are form-matter composites. As such, they each have a diversity of properties, quantities, qualities, different qualities, relations, habits, locations in time, locations in place, position, actions, and passions. That's the categories of being. These diverse properties can be said to inhere in substances that they belong to in the sense that they are each aspects of a greater ontological whole of which they are a part. For example, no human being can say simply that she is identical with her qualities. Julia just is her intelligence. I walk into the room and say, I am intelligence. I am intelligence. It's absurd. It's ridiculous, right? I am generosity. I am generosity. No, no. You have generosity. It's a property. Maybe. Maybe you are generous. Maybe you are ungenerous. Maybe you're intelligent. Maybe you're not intelligent. But the point is, these are properties, not the substance. Julia is a substance, this person here who is distinct from all the others, who has a given nature, she is a human being, and who has certain properties, intelligence, a given height, a relationship to her father. You see? Quality, quantity, relation. Quantity, quality, relation. Quality, quantity, relation. The diversity of these distinct properties is real. Your height is not your intelligence. Your relationship to your father is not your height. And, and is not a mere construct of our perceiving mind. Ontologically, qualities and quantity are irreducibly distinct from one another, but they only exist within and as the properties of a given substance. We can conclude from this introduction to substance ontology that according to Aquinas, our world is complex. We should not try to reduce everything to one category of being alone, quantitative parts, for example, such as atoms that happen to be arranged in a, a certain order. We have a desire for simplicity of explanation. We would like everything to be quantitative, so we could explain everything as an arrangement of quantitative parts. It's not realistic. There's other things out there. <laughs> Nor are things merely simple substances devoid of properties. Instead, multiple properties inhere in substances and characterize them in diverse ways, as when we say that a given person really is de intelligent, or depressed, or courageous. Substances cannot be merely reduced to their material parts or to their properties. Material parts only subsist within greater wholes. I am not my physical organs or a collection of chemicals. I have physical organs, which in turn imply very complex arrangements of chemical composition. These things inhere in me as a unified being. This philosophical map of the world leaves us with the admission that, if Aquinas is correct, reality is not ontologically monochromatic. Yeah, one color. It's not a reality of, it's not the world is not one color. It can be, it cannot be neatly boxed up into simplistic explanations. However, it is not unintelligible either or chaotic. There is an ontological order in reality. The mind can make progress so as to progressively unveil the structure of reality and understand its constitution. Aquinas's substance ontology arguably helps us a great deal in this task. 
It aids us in our search to come to know the basic contours of reality, the fundamental metaphysical principles, as they are manifest to us in our genuine experience of the world. Now, if you turn over the page, I give a little chart. At the top, you have substance, an individual of a given nature, a human being, and then you have properties that inhere in the human being ontologically. So, John. John is a human being. John has a certain quantity of size, a shape, a weight. He has qualities. He's, his, color, his color of his skin, the color of his hair, his capacity to play the piano, his capacity to solve math problems. Okay? He has certain relations. He is the son of Samuel and Martha. He has certain habits that say he's related to things around him. He has a certain time. He's, living, he's at a given time and at a given place. He's in a, posi a position like standing or sitting. He, ha he is performing actions or he's undergoing things. Passions is undergoing things. So I'm being changed by the air around me. I'm breathing in the air and the air is changing my lungs. Activity, passivity. Okay. As we'll see in the next lecture, common to all the categories are the transcendentals. Transcendentals are features of being present in every categorical mode of being. Existence, unity, truth, goodness, beauty. And this is where we pass. I started with things very concrete, and we'll pass to things very transcendent. So that we, we're going, we started on the sort of very material, realistic level, and we're headed towards transcendence and transcendentals and God. <laughs>